The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand, O you who save those who trust in you, from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from the deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him. Cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord, from the men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babies. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. All right, we're in Numbers 28, 16 through 31 today. Uh, we're going to, as I said last week, the same is true this week. We're going to have some repetition because they're the same types of sacrifices. So if you say, I've heard this before, it's because you have heard this before. Okay? But you have to keep the constancy. And the reason why is because each one of these sacrifices points to Christ. That's right. Every offering points to Christ. So we, that's why there's all this repetition. Each feast, they're trying to wake the people up to their understanding of the Messiah to come. All right? So we're in Numbers 28, verses 16 through 31. And on the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. And on the 15th day of this month is the feast. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. And you shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Be sure that they are without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull, and two-tenths for a ram. You shall offer one-tenth of an ephah for each of the seven lambs, also one goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall offer these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is for a regular burnt offering. In this manner, you shall offer the food of the offering made by fire daily for seven days as a sweet aroma to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And on the seventh day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. 
Also, on the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord at your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year, with their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for the one ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also, one kid of the goats to make atonement for you. Be sure they are without blemish. You shall present them with their drink offerings besides the regular burnt offering with its grain offering. Today, we continue on with the offerings of the timed redemptive events found in the annual Hebrew calendar. As we have seen some of these events numerous times before, it might seem dull or even tedious to revisit them. Passover has been mentioned again and again since it was first introduced in the book of Exodus. This is true with unleavened bread as well. Even weeks has been seen several times and it will be seen again before we leave the books of Moses. You might say, why doesn't the Lord just give us all of the information on these things once and move on? Like the Sabbath, however, we find that the Lord is progressively revealing his intent through these repetitions. This is because they are not merely rote repetitions, but they are concepts which are repeated, and yet they are also being built upon. In each step we take under one of these subjects, we see a beautiful order and harmony develop. By the time we get through with them, we, if we are willing to study them as they are given, find that everything makes complete sense. To have compiled all of the information at one time would have been to rob us of the incredible tapestry which the Lord has woven together. Our text verse comes from Ecclesiastes 7, it is verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. As soon as I finished the sermon work for these verses, this verse came to mind. The introduction is generally the last thing that I type before being finished with the sermon, and the verse seemed to fit very well. As usual, there was a lot of study mulling over things during the verses, but nothing that seemed overly complicated, just more mentally laborious than anything else. However, upon arriving at the last verse, things changed. The matter went from being mentally laborious to mentally challenging. If I had known in advance that the last verse would take as much time to consider as many of the other verses combined, I would have quoted the text verse to myself at the beginning of the typing. Yes, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. Translations vary into one of two major ways the verse is translated, and they both will then result in a different way of perceiving other things that are found in all of the rest of the verses. Would I have to go back and edit what I had typed? Were my initial thoughts correct? When faced with a problem like this, what should I do? Do I lick my finger and hold it up to see which way the wind is blowing? Do I cast lots as John Wesley would have done in hopes of resolving the matter? Should I just pick one and go with it? Rather, I did what a wise person would do. I called Sergio. And he happens to be here today. I typed this, what, 11 weeks ago? And here he is sitting with us. I called him over in Nazareth because that's always a good way of resolving things. Two minds work better than one. When he first looked at the verse, he tended towards the opposite conclusion that I had come up with, and I thought, I've got to type another three or four hours worth of work today because I've got to correct everything because this is what he came up with. But that's when I showed him all of the study I had already done in chapter 28 and also looking forward into chapter 29 in hopes of finding an answer. 
after that, he agreed that my initial thoughts were probably correct. Whew. Now I don't have to fudge anything. I don't have to correct anything. And I have material for the sermon introduction. Yes, it's good to have a friend to sort difficulties out with. I recommend you find one in whatever your life needs are and learn to lean on one another. It sure makes things go more smoothly. For now, let's get into the sermon. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is offerings for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's verses 16 through 25. Verse 16, on the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. The offerings of chapter 28 have gone from the daily to the weekly, meaning the Sabbath, to the monthly, meaning the beginnings of the months or the new moon, and now they go to the annual offerings. You can see the harmony in how they're structured, daily, weekly, monthly, and now annual. The progression has been logical and orderly. Of the annual offerings, the Passover is mentioned first because it is the first annual feast of the first month, and it is said to be Pesach le Yehovah, or Passover to Yehovah. It is a commemorative celebration which is not properly translated as of the Lord. It can mean of the Lord, but it's properly translated as to the Lord. At the original Passover, the Lord struck all of the firstborn of Egypt, but all who participated in the Passover lamb were spared. The lamb died so that its blood could be applied, saving those who participated in that act. The killing of the Passover lamb anticipated the death of Christ. Thus, it is Passover to the Lord. This was first instituted in Exodus 12, verses 1 through 21. Before that, the first month of the year was what later became the seventh month of the year in the redemptive calendar. <coughs> that is spoken right at the beginning of Exodus chapter 12, where it says this, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Before this, the calendar began with the seventh month. If you go back to the account of Noah, etc., that's the seventh month is the first month of the year. It's a little confusing, but understand that God changed it, and he said, this month shall be the first of the year to you. In reality, Israel would use two different calendars throughout their years. The first is the creation or civil calendar, and the second is this one instituted by the Lord, which would be the redemptive calendar. This is because it details the timing of the redemptive events associated with the work of the Lord, the first being Passover. This was to be on the 14th day of the first month. The 14th day is the day just before the full moon, which would occur on the 15th day. As the biblical day goes from evening to evening, as soon as the 14th day ended and the 15th started, the full moon would be expected to arise. It was at this time that, verse 17, and on the 15th day of this month is the feast. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. This now details what is considered a separate feast, the feast of unleavened bread. It is one of the three pilgrim feasts, meaning a feast where all of the males of Israel were required to appear before the Lord at the place of his dwelling. This is stated in Exodus 23, 34, and also in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. 
Though a pilgrim feast, it is joined to the Passover. The two are separate appointments, but they unite because they follow one after the other. Unleavened bread was first stated in Exodus 12 as well. Here's what it says. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. In that set of verses, it says, on the 14th day of the month at evening. This means the beginning of the 15th day. Hence, unleavened bread is a seven-day feast affixed to the Passover. It began on the 15th day, and it continued through the 21st day. It should be noted that the first day of unleavened bread is not a Sabbath. That's a very important point. Rather, it is a holy convocation. Meals could be prepared on it, but no regular work was to be done. On a Sabbath, not even meals could be prepared. Understanding this will help to avoid confusion concerning the actual crucifixion date of Jesus Christ. Eventually, the two feasts, Passover and unleavened bread, became united in terminology. This is seen in Leviticus 22, verse 1, where Luke says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. Luke says that the feast of unleavened bread is called Passover. This is not saying that they are one feast according to the model laid out in the books of Moses. What it is saying is that it is one feast according to the common language of the people. To understand this, we can think of what we might call our Christmas holiday. Although there are two actual holidays during the school break, Christmas and New Year's, we call them both by the one name. This is common terminology, just as Luke was using. Thus, this cannot be considered an error in the Bible. It is a misunderstanding in Luke's intention, which is to describe the feast time which the Jews were gathering to celebrate. In this verse, the word feast is not the same as that used elsewhere concerning the Passover. One word is moed, which signifies an appointed time or meeting. The other is chag. The word chag comes from chagag, which means in turn to move in a circle or specifically to march in a sacred procession. From there you have the implication of being giddy because you're going around in circles or to celebrate, to dance, and to feast. It is to be a time of worship, celebration, and sacrifice. It is a pilgrim feast. Unfortunately, translations normally use one word to describe the two thoughts, moed and chag. All eight feasts listed in Leviticus 23 are moed, or appointed times but only three are Chag, or actual feasts, unleavened bread, weeks, and tabernacles. That is why the verse we are looking at right now specifically calls it a feast. It is a feast in the truest sense. It is a time of celebration. As I noted a minute ago, and which is now explicitly stated, verse 18, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. This is the 15th day of the month. And the mandate was first noted with these words in Exodus chapter 12. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day, I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting 
ordinance. The holy convocations are two. One is noted here, and one will be noted in verse 25. Both are mentioned together in Exodus 12. As it says in Exodus, No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. This is further defined as, verse 18 going on, You shall do no customary work. The scholar Kyle, along with others, says that on the first and seventh day there was to be a Sabbath rest and holy meeting. This is incorrect, and it has led to faulty conclusions over the years concerning what day the Lord was crucified. Some say it was a Thursday or even a Wednesday. <coughs> these are incorrect. As just noted, food could be prepared on these holy convocations. But on the Sabbath, the instructions are very clear. Here's what it says in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. This builds upon Exodus 16, where the preparing of meals was strictly forbidden on the Sabbath. Thus, these holy convocations cannot be equated to Sabbaths. Verse 19, and you shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord. In Leviticus 23, in the instructions for this feast, it said on the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation and you shall do no customary work on it. At that time, the offering made by fire to the Lord was not specified. Only now, just prior to entering Canaan, is that given. It is argued that the Passover was not observed during the time in the wilderness under punishment because only now are these required offerings mandated. That is faulty logic. The Sabbath was certainly observed during the entire time that they were in the wilderness. But the Sabbath offerings are also only mandated here in this chapter. We talked about them last week. Whether those who had been circumcised before the time of punishment continued to observe the Passover or not is unknown. But it is known that those who were born in the wilderness did not. According to Exodus chapter 12, one must be circumcised in order to observe the Passover. However, in Joshua it says this, For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness, on the way as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. It seems hard to imagine that Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and so on would fail to observe the Passover. However, the matter is left unstated. All that matters is that now the offerings for all of these appointed times are being given. It is an indication that they will, in fact, enter Canaan, and they will be a society with sufficient grain, wine, and animals to make these required offerings, something that could not be done while in the wilderness. From this point on, and for the daily offerings during this feast, they are to offer, verse 19 continues, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Now, before I go on, what are these offerings that I just mentioned? Picture? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. It says that the people that were in the wilderness during the time of punishment were not circumcised. Can anybody tell me what that's picturing? Being in sin. Being in Christ. When you're cir circumcised, you're in Christ. Christ, our <coughs> Passover, is sacrificed for us. So yes, the people that are not in circumcised are in sin. It is 
as you remember, we've gone through all of these number of sermons and it made a picture all the way from the time of leaving Sinai all the way until right now we have seen a picture of the people of Israel rejecting Jesus Christ and being under punishment for these past 2,000 years and it patterns what happened in redemptive history perfectly with what is recorded here so they could not celebrate the Passover because they were uncircumcised and who was circumcised during the past 2,000 years not the Jews but the Gentiles because circumcision is of the heart not of the flesh. Is everybody seeing the symbolism? We are now getting into the sacrifices which picture Christ. They are going into the land of Canaan, which is the land of promise. And there they will meet Christ, which is coming soon to a tribulation period near you. Everything makes sense when you take it in one picture of what God is doing in Christ. It is marvelous. We'll go on. This is the exact same animal offerings as were required for the new moon celebration. We saw that last week. First were parim bene bakar shinaim, bulls, son of ox, two. As we have seen, the par or bull comes from the word parar, which carries the meaning of defeat or make void. And this is a type of Christ who defeated the devil, making void that which he had wrought. Bakar comes from a word meaning to inquire or seek out. Being a son of such an ox looks to Christ who seeks out those he would redeem, just as the Lord is said to seek out his sheep in Ezekiel chapter 34. In offering two bulls, the first looks to the work of Christ accomplished for the people. The second anticipates help and deliverance in the year which lies ahead. The one bull looks to Christ's accomplished work, and the second looks to the work Christ continues to accomplish. In other words, he has defeated the devil, and the one is a remembrance of that, but we still look to him to deliver us from the devil. As I asked you last week, does anybody here deny that the devil is still attacking you? Of course he is. That's what this is picturing, of which the second is given in anticipation of that. We hunger for Christ's help while we walk in this earth. The reason for offering one each day of the feast is what this seven-day period signifies. As a feast, it follows directly after the Passover, and it signifies the life of the believer who is in Christ. The unleavened bread signifies a life without sin. In the instructions for the people, they were given a positive command to eat unleavened bread during the entire feast. This goes in picture to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8. He says, let us keep the feast. He's not speaking of the Passover. He's speaking of the feast of unleavened bread. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That is what this is picturing right here. Not only are we to not partake of sin, but we are to actively live our lives in sincerity and truth. It is not that we can abstain from the whole if we abstain from one. It is that we are to abstain from one while partaking in the other. No sinning while actively living in holiness. Everybody see that? Thus, the offering of the second bull anticipates our relying on Christ to keep free from sin, even though we have been freed from sin. Next, the offering included one ayil, or ram. That comes from a word denoting strength. The ram <laughs> reflects the total commitment of Christ who offered all of his natural strength to his father. He is fully sufficient to redeem all. And thirdly, the people were to offer seven lambs of the first year. The lamb, or kebes, as we've seen a couple times in the previous sermons, signifies to dominate. The type of animal looks to Christ who dominated over sin. Seven of them pictures Christ. 
it being the number of spiritual perfection, emblematic of his spiritually perfect work. Being of the first year signifies innocence, just as Christ was innocent. Through his innocence, he prevailed over the law, he dominated over sin, and he destroyed it. And in all of these animals, it then says, verse 19 continues, be sure they're without blemish. Temimim yiyu lachem, perfect to be them. It is a stern note expecting compliance. As with all animals presented as burnt offerings to the Lord, they were to be without spot, without blemish, and perfect. The reason for the stress is that these animals were presented in anticipation of Christ who would have no sin before God. As seen already, Peter provides exactly this explanation. 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19, which by the way, I ought to say this right now, we are starting 1 Peter in just another day. We're finishing up the book of James. 1 Peter starts this week. If you want to follow along, go to the Superior Word website. Go to today and hover over it. It'll pull down the uh, the uh, thing that I typed, and you can read along, and you can finish 1 Peter. I think it's in 105 days. It won't take any time at all, and you'll know what is being said here. I'll be typing verse 18 in eight more days because I typed 1 Peter 1.10 this morning. Okay knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The typology was expected to be maintained because every offering to the Lord was in anticipation of the perfect Christ who was coming. To offer a defiled or blemished animal was to disgrace the notion of the glory which lay ahead in him. Verse 20, their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull and two-tenths for a ram. This is the same grain offerings as for the bulls and the ram of the monthly offering that we saw last week. The same symbolism is seen here as was seen there. If you forgot from last week, go brush up. The size of the grain offering corresponds to the size of the animal. Verse 21, you shall offer one-tenth of an ephah for each of the seven lambs. And again, it is the same grain offering mixed in the same manner and carrying the same symbolism, but this time the amount is smaller in order to correspond with the smaller size of the animal. In the instructions here, there is no drink offering mentioned. This will be the same for the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It is assumed by some that a drink offering was made along with each of these animals. But unless the text says so, it is better to not jump to such conclusions. You read scholars, and the scholars say, well, of course, they included the drink offering. It does not say, do not assume that at all. Why it fails to mention them in these places is rather curious. The instructions are so precise that not mentioning them seems intentional, but is otherwise unexplained. Despite that, along with these burnt offerings, there was, verse 22, also one goat as a sin offering. A goat was also required for the new moon offering. Like there, it is a sayir, or a hairy goat. As we have seen countless times since the book of Genesis, hair signifies awareness. It is a sin offering, and thus it is an awareness of sin. This sayir is a reminder of the sinful state of the people. In picture for us, despite unleavened bread looking to our being in Christ and living as unleavened or sinless, this tells us that we still actually are not so. We still need Christ's covering to free us from the sin which we do commit. It is not that we do not sin in Christ. 
Rather, it is that we do sin, but sin is not imputed to us. Everybody got that? We do sin. Everybody here, if you're in Christ, you are still sinning, but that sin is not being held against you. That is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read you the NIV from this one, where Paul states that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. The reason why I chose the NIV is because it's easier to understand. In the New King James Version, it says not imputing sin to us, and some people don't know what imputing means. You understand it's not counting men's sins against us. Christ is our offering for sin, but he is also our continued offering for sin through the non-imputation of sin once in him. This is what is now pictured in this Sayer. As this verse continues to say, it is verse 22 going on, to make atonement for you. Le kapir alechem, to make atonement for you. The word kafir signifies to cover over. This is what Christ does for us when we are in him. And so before going on, I want you all to think this through logically. If we are covered in Christ, then our past sins have been atoned for. Will anybody disagree with that? Absolutely not. Our sins are atoned for. They are covered over. Thus, they are no longer counted against us. This is salvation. But in 2 Corinthians 5, which I just read, it says that in Christ, God is not counting our sins against us, meaning the sins we commit after coming to Christ. Everybody got that? They're covered over. Can someone please explain to me how a person can lose his salvation if it is sin that separates us from God and yet our sins are covered over and continue to be covered over? Can anyone explain that to me? Salvation is eternal. Anybody that tells you that you can lose your salvation, I would expect you to get up and walk out of that church. I'm not kidding. If you go to another church someday or if you go visiting one or get sick of me and go to another church and they tell you you can lose your salvation, go somewhere else because you cannot. That is, it's control. That's what that is. But it is also diminishing what Christ did, what God did in Christ with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. All right? The old covenant sacrifices point to new covenant truths. If anything, our walk in Christ and our confidence in what Christ has done and is doing for us should only be strengthened by studying these otherwise ignored or at least overlooked verses. That's why we look at the Old Testament too, is because everything pictures what God has done in Christ. Verse 23, you shall offer these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is for a regular burnt offering. This refers to the morning offering mentioned in verses 3 through 8 of this chapter. We saw it a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week. There it spoke of both a morning and an evening offering, which were to be offered each day. What it is then implying is that these offerings of the Feast of Unleavened Bread were to be offered separately from the morning offering, and also after the morning offering. All offerings were cumulative. One did not replace another. By the end of the day, on a special feast day, they've sacrificed a lot of animals because they have everything added up. None of these replace any others. These different offerings were not to be mingled together because each bears its own picture of the person and work of Christ. The symbolism of Christ's marvelous work was always to be maintained. Understanding this, we can take an example directly from the Gospels to see what would have occurred on a particular day. We'll pick John 19.31 where it says this, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. On the day after the cross, 
meaning the day after Passover, as or as John here calls it preparation day, it was a Sabbath that year. Thus, the day of the cross being Passover was a Friday on the 14th of the first month. The next day, the 15th, a Sabbath day, would have had the following sacrifices. First, the regular morning offering. That happened, remember we talked about that two weeks ago. The regular morning offering happened at nine o'clock in the morning when they were nailing the nails through Christ's hands and feet. That sacrifice was going on. All right, after those, it would have then had the offering for the first day of unleavened bread, which we are looking at right now. Finally, the day would be complete with the evening offering, which included the second Sabbath offering as well. That was at three o'clock in the afternoon. That's when Christ died. Each and every offering was being conducted at the same time that Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of them, was lying in the grave. After his marvelous work, he rested, and in him we now rest. So you had the offerings on the Passover, and I'm explaining to you the ones of the Sabbath day after the Passover. All of those were offered, including the Sabbath day offering. The important thing is Christ was doing what on the Sabbath day? He was resting from his work. He had completed it, and he was in the grave, waiting to be raised by God the Father. And so the symbolism is so beautifully seen in the Sabbath day offering being laid on top of the offerings which pictured his work, his crucifixion, and his death. John calls that particular Sabbath a high day. It is not because it was a special day which was set apart as a Sabbath. Rather, it was a regular Sabbath that coincided with the Holy Convocation, which is the first day of unleavened bread. That special offering on the first day was to be continued throughout the feast. This is where people get their theology wrong and they say that Christ was crucified on a Thursday or a Wednesday because they say the Sabbath is a high day, meaning it's an irregular Sabbath. No, it's a regular Sabbath that coincides with a feast day. That is why it's called a high Sabbath, okay? As it next says, verse 24, in this manner you shall offer the food of the offering made by fire for seven days. In other words, what has been detailed since verse 18 is to be conducted on each and every day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. From the 15th day of the month until the 21st day of the month, the same offerings were to be made. Verse 24 continues, as a sweet aroma to the Lord. As unleavened bread pictures our time in Christ, and as all of the offerings picture Christ, we can go to Ephesians 5 to see how we should conduct ourselves and why it is so. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. We are to imitate God, and we are to walk as Christ walked because he is our offering and sacrifice, fulfilling these pictures from the Old Covenant. Paul's words are a great summary of what this feast pictures. Verse 24 going on, it shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. These words tell us explicitly that the offerings of the feast are made in addition to the other daily offerings. One did not replace the other, but they were cumulatively added according to the day or the particular feast. The mentioning of the drink offering here, but not at any point during the offerings for the unleavened bread offerings, is a clue that there was no drink offering to be presented with those unleavened bread offerings. It seems to be an error to assume that the offerings included a drink offering. The words are way too precise to make such an assumption. Do not insert into the Bible what the Bible does not say. Verse 25, and on the seventh day you shall have a holy convocation. 
You shall do no customary work. As with the first day of unleavened bread, so is the final day. Both are to be holy convocations. They are not Sabbaths, but days on which customary work was forbidden. Israel was not to merely abstain from work, but they were to actively celebrate the work of the Lord. The entire week was to be a feast, but the seventh day was to be a feast unto itself as a festive termination of the feast. The two holy convocations bracket the feast. They stand as representative of the entire period of it. And the feast itself is a picture of our time in Christ in this earthly life. From the day of our adoption as sons of God, that's the first day of the feast, until the day we go home to glory, that is the last day of the feast. Whatever that means for you, you might walk out of here today and you might die, and that's the end of your feast. Or you might go up at the rapture. That is the end of your feast. But this is what those two days of that feast are picturing. The offerings on each day of the feast were to be markers pointing to Christ and what he would accomplish for his people. Holy and pure is how you are to conduct your life, abstaining from all malice and from wicked ways, keeping yourself from backbiting and from strife, instead living out your lives properly all your days. Because you truly are unleavened in my eyes, Having called on Jesus, you are free from your sin debt. You reached out, and in your need, you took hold of the prize, receiving Jesus as your Savior. All my conditions met. Therefore, walk holy just as you are already reckoned. Walk in a manner worthy of your heavenly call. For you responded when my spirit beckoned, because my son Jesus has broken down the wall. Our second thought today is offerings for the Feast of Weeks. It's verses 26 through 31. Verse 26, also on the day of the first fruits. In the Feast of the Lord, there are two times that first fruits are mentioned. The first is the appointed time of first fruits. That is seen in Leviticus 23, 9 through 15. That pictured Christ's resurrection. It is not what is being spoken of here. Rather, this is what is mentioned in the Feast of Weeks, which comes 50 days later. The first First fruits was on Sunday, the day Christ arose. The next first fruits was 50 days later, again on a Sunday. One first fruits leads directly into the next and is seven weeks later. That is explicitly stated next. Verse 26 continues When you bring a new grain offering to the Lord at your feast of weeks, the Hebrew reads, In your weeks. It is at this time, seven weeks later, on the 50th day, that this new grain offering is brought. That is recorded in Leviticus 23, verses 16 and 17. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. This is one of only two times in the Bible that leaven was to be offered to the Lord. If you don't remember, those two loaves signified the presentation of Jew and Gentile to the Lord, both with sin, meaning leaven, but both accepted because of the work of the Lord. This feast in the New Testament is known as Pentecost, and it pictures the giving of the Holy Spirit to those who come to Christ. The feast was, like unleavened bread, one of three pilgrim feasts where all of the males were required to meet before the Lord. On this day, it says, verse 26 continues, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. Again, as with the holy convocations, which bracket unleavened bread, this particular day was a day to refrain from work and to actively celebrate with the Lord. However, it is not considered a Sabbath day. On this special day of gathering and celebration, verse 27, 
You shall present a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord. This is the special offering for the day. It is another cumulative offering not intended to replace the other mandated offerings. That special offering is now stated as verse 27 going on. Two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Here again is the same type and number of animals as with the new moon and unleavened bread offerings. They carry the same meaning and picture concerning Christ's work as before. As you just heard the symbolism a few minutes ago, I'm not going to repeat it now. If you were napping when I gave it to you, shame on you. Go home and watch the sermon again. I saw my son yawning during this, so I think he's probably going to watch it twice. Verse 28, with their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for the one ram. It is the same grain offering mentioned in verse 20, which we just reviewed, and it carries exactly the same symbolism. Further, verse 29, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. And again, it is the same offering with the same symbolism for the grain offering for the lambs. Each grain offering is based on the size of the animal. This is what the Lord expects for this holy convocation offering. However, this then seems to contradict Leviticus 23. There it says, a different number of animals. Here's what it says. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for sweet aroma to the Lord. First, there's only one bull mandated in Leviticus 23. Here it says two bulls. There it says two rams, and here it says only one ram. And both say seven lambs. Further, in Leviticus 23, it mentions a drink offering is to be made with each. However, none is mentioned here in Numbers. And because of this, some scholars see that error has crept into the text. That is not correct. The difference is plain and obvious to the reader, and it would be more so to those who conducted the rituals, especially when this feast was celebrated year by year. There is no contradiction. Rather, these offerings are distinct from those in Leviticus. The ones there belong to the loaves. The ones here in Numbers are for the day of the feast itself. In other words, as we've seen with every single offering in this chapter so far, these are cumulative offerings. They're added on top of the offerings already mandated. There would first be made the daily offerings. Then would follow the offerings for the feast itself, as outlined here. And only then would the offerings for the two loaves be made. This will be confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt when we arrive next week at the Day of Atonement offerings of chapter 29, which are completely different than those of Leviticus 23. The only reason to erringly assume a contradiction is because of the seeming similarity between the offerings peculiar to the festival and the additional offerings mandated here now. That is shown false by those Day of Atonement offerings coming up in the next chapter. Rather than having error, these passages are so meticulously arranged that they are shown to be incredibly intricate and which demonstrate marvelous order and harmony. This is all the more evident because here in Numbers, no drink offering is mentioned along with the animal offerings, but those of Leviticus 23 do mention the drink offerings. One should not lightly assume that drink offerings are implied when they are not explicitly stated. That's the third time I've said that to you, and it's because I want you to remember. Just because somebody says, oh, naturally, this is, it doesn't mean that they are correct. Scholars make errors. Charlie Garrett makes errors. Read the Bible until you can't read it anymore, and then pick it up and read it some more. So it fills you. Paul says in the New Testament, let the word of God dwell in you richly richly. When we think of somebody that's rich, we think of what? Somebody that has a lot. 
they have more than us. When we add the L-Y at the end of the word rich, we come up with an adverb, richly. We are to let the word of God dwell in us richly, abundantly, even more so, so that it's overflowing. He's rich in material wealth, big deal. We're going to be the redeemed of the Lord, and we will be rich in the heavenlies for eternity. But how do you get rewards there? By faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. This is what we want to do. Don't add to this word. Don't subtract from it. Study it, and you'll understand why things seem to contradict when they never, (laughs) ever do. Verse 30, also one kid of the goats to make atonement for you. In Leviticus 23, after the other festival offerings, it says this, Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. Once again, this very clearly shows there is no contradiction. There is a separate goat offering for the festival, and then there are also two male lambs for it as well. Here in Numbers, there is an additional goat offered for atonement. Why would the Lord do this? It is the same reason as before. Every offering and every occasion is to be kept separate in order to maintain the typology of what Christ would do. In one way, he fulfills this, and in one way, he fulfills that. Everything is to be kept separate and distinct so that the fullness of what Christ has done is revealed in the individual passages. You read this and you keep saying, why is he slaughtering so many animals? It's because he wants us to see Jesus. One doesn't replace the other because Jesus did this here and he did this here and this points to justification and this points to sanctification and all the way through the Bible, he is showing us these animals are picturing our lives in Christ. This particular goat offering, again, looks to the same symbolism as was seen in the corresponding goat offering of unleavened bread. And then finally, verse 31 finishes with these words, be sure they are without blemish. You shall present them with their drink offerings besides the regular burnt offering with its grain offering. The verses and the chapter end on an extremely complicated set of words. The Hebrew is so difficult that I called my buddy Sergio in Israel and we talked about it for some period. The New King James Version, along with some other versions, changes the entire structure of the Hebrew to show what the Hebrew would grammatically say under a best guess. (coughs) However... From a contextual reading of all of the other feasts mentioned in chapter 28 and 29, it appears that their translation is completely wrong. The New King James Version makes the drink offering appear to apply to the festival offerings, not the daily burnt offerings. However, at the end of every other section in these two chapters, the drink offering is explicitly said to be offered to the daily burnt offerings. In the Hebrew, there are three individual clauses. One, besides the burnt offering, the regular, and with its grain offering, you shall present them. Two, you shall present without blemish to them. Three, and with their drink offerings. The question is, does the third clause apply to the first, meaning the burnt offerings, or to the other offerings already named earlier in the verses? Based on the context of all of the other major passages of these two chapters, it must be speaking of the daily burnt offering. But then why add, you shall present them without blemish in the middle? No matter how it's translated, it calls out for the emphasis to be on the thought of everything offered is to be without blemish. 
When reading the Hebrew, anyone who was concerned about being accurate in their offerings would have to admit that the unusual structure of the verse is calling out for that to be perfectly understood. The reason for this takes us to the last book of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 1, the Lord severely rebukes the people for profaning his name by offering animals that were stolen, lame, and sick. He repeats it at the end of the chapter with these words, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. These people have just come out of 2,000 years of punishment. The people in the Bible came out of 38 years of wandering in the wilderness, which pictures that 2,000 years of punishment. They are to offer the best to the Lord, not something blemished. That's why this verse is the way it is. It's so peculiar and so difficult. I had to spend how much time with you on the phone that day? It was a lot as we went through this and talked about it. It's because they are going to call on the Antichrist, an animal with sin, a blemished animal. They're offering a wrong offering to God. Right at the end of their wilderness wanderings, he warned them, do not do this thing. And they're going to do it. And they're going to enter into the tribulation period because they have not gone to what these sacrifices and offerings picture, which is Jesus Christ. The Lord expected the very best of his people because he is the best of all beings. And in his asking for the best, it was because his incarnation in Christ, the greatest and best of all beings, was being pictured in these offerings. Regardless of anything else, this is what Israel was expected to know. When Christ came, they were to recognize him for who he is, and they were to submit to him. But just like the defiled offerings they brought to the Lord, they treated their Messiah with the same reviling contempt, and they have suffered because of it. We dare not make the same mistake, and yet we do. A thousand times a day and in 10,000 different ways, we treat the honor of the Lord carelessly. We do it in our lives. We do it in our churches. We do it in the deep recesses of our hearts. But God is a great God. And in the giving of his son, it was the greatest of his acts. Let us reflect on this. Let us take it to heart and treat him with the highest honor and the greatest respect. We will fail. And that is to be expected as symbolized by the goat offering of atonement. But when we fail, let us be grateful for our continued salvation, despite what we have done. And then let us brush ourselves off and go forward in the grace which has already been given, which is the eternal salvation which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I've been practicing this sermon out loud every morning for eight days in a row. And somebody here has been living with me for the past week. And she's sitting here today. She came up from Naples. She just moved down to Naples, but she drove back with Mary. So poor Lynn has had to listen to me say that. And you know what? She comes and she would just stand there. And she said, I have to read your sermons again and again until I get them. Well, she was standing there trying to get it. And of course, I'm not doing a presentation. I'm trying to find errors and all my typos so you don't have a bunch of hard to read stuff. I'm so proud of her. She loves the word of God. Mary loves the word of God. They just love the Word of God, and some of you in here do. And if you don't, start loving the Word of God. It is our connection to the Lord. It's the one thing that we have to possess until we possess Christ in all of his fullness is the Word of God. I remember one of the most heartbreaking days of my life is when I had some friends that used to live in Sarasota, and they had to move. They moved to Atlanta, and then after that they moved to West Palm Beach, and then they eventually moved back to Israel. 
and we were at the beach on their last day here and we were celebrating together and they got in their car and I was about to cry and I said if nothing else what did I tell you remember the word of God keep that in your heart treasure it because that is your connection to God until he comes to take us and I'm so thankful that he kept in contact with me. I figured I, he's never going to call me again. He's taking care of this church every Sunday and every Thursday without missing one Thursday or one Sunday since we opened these doors. Every single week he has been there from Israel or up in Lithuania or he was in uh, uh, Italy last week. Wherever he is, he's taking care of the church. That becomes his responsibility. And then guess what he does? After we close, I have to run home and i got to start processing these videos and it's a lot of hard work and it takes me all day. So I ask you not to keep me here. But guess what? There's another reason. because he's got to wait until I'm done with all my work. And by then it's 1 or 2 o'clock at night. Because I don't know what I'm doing and I screw everything up and he has to fix it. <laughs> so let's get off that subject and let's talk about Christ for just one minute. Christ died for your sins. You have sin in your life and there's no way you can get rid of that sin. You can't go back and undo it because you're in time and you're going forward. But Christ is outside of time. He is the master of time and space. He came into the stream of time and he lived the life that you and I cannot live. And he gave that life up in exchange for all the wicked things that you have done in your life and continue to do. And then he went into the grave and he had his rest. And on the third day, the father raised him because he was pleased with the work he had accomplished. And he says that if you do one thing, one thing, he will save you is put faith in Jesus Christ. He did all of the work, everything necessary. There's not one thing you need to do except believe. That's Romans 10, 9, and 10, and it's based on 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Christ died, went into the grave, was raised again. And he says, if you call on the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Please call on him today. Okay, I've got a closing verse for you here from... Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Not for your good, but to the praise of his glory. If he doesn't save you eternally, then it's not to the praise of his glory. You are saved. And guess what? Those verses... They mirror what we just read. Saved in Christ and sealed is the Passover, unleavened bread, and Pentecost. Those three feasts are mirrored in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Next week is Numbers 29, 1 through 40. This is a bunch of verses, okay? It's going to go quickly. The poem will go on and on and on. Won't be the longest poem we've ever done, but it'll be a long one. But it's a big title for the sermon concerning these profferings. It's entitled The Day of Acclamation, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles Offerings. That'll be your 57th number sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I've got a poem for you, but before I do, I also have a Maserati to give away to somebody. Lynn is the one that sent us the Maserati, by the way. So if you win the Maserati sometime, you thank her. Okay, this is going to be tough. It's not going to be easy. In this sermon and in other sermons, I have noted that all of the Leviticus 23 feasts, all eight of them, are moed, or appointed times. However, 
There are three Chag feasts. That's the word feasts, okay? Unleavened bread, weeks, and tabernacles. What is the reason for all being called appointments, but only three being called feasts? I said it during our sermon today. Eight appointments, three feasts. Why the difference? Anybody? I don't ever want you to forget this. Nobody gets a Maserati. I'm keeping. I'm going to speed around Sarasota this week. I need some gas money, though. It's because the appointments point to Christ, the appointed time of his fulfilling the appointment. But the feast, the hog, point to our lives in Christ. We are living in Christ. And so we are celebrating. Remember I said it's a festival. It means that you're like you're giddy and you're enjoying yourself. This is picturing our life in Christ. He is the one that fulfilled everything. We live in what he fulfilled. Don't ever forget that because everybody gets the feasts of the Lord wrong. I don't care what you watch on the feasts of the Lord. You will get an incorrect analysis of it. They call them the feasts of Israel. They call them the Jewish feasts. They mess up the symbolism. It is so precise unless you go through every single word, as some of you have with us. You know how precise they are. Everything points to Christ in his work and that what we live in him. Moed, appointments, hag feasts. Okay, our poem. Passover and the unleavened bread and weeks offerings. On the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord, and on the 15th day of this month is the feast. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation from the greatest to the least. You shall do no customary work. Then you shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Be sure they are without blemish, as I require. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull and two-tenths for a ram, so you shall do. You shall offer one-tenth of an ephah for each of the seven lambs and one goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall offer these besides the burn offering of the morning, so this you shall do, which is for a regular burn offering as I am now instructing you. In this manner you shall offer the food of the offering made by fire daily for seven days, so shall be this proffering. As a sweet aroma to the Lord, it shall be offered besides the regular burn offering and its drink offering. On the seventh day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work throughout the whole nation. Also on the day of first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord, at your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work according to this word. You shall present a burnt offering as an aroma to the Lord so sweet. Be sure that the offering is complete. Two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year with their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, so you shall do. Three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for the one ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one kid of the goats, to make atonement for you. Be sure they are without blemish. You shall present them with their drink offerings, as I say. Besides the regular burnt offering with its grain offering, they shall be offered in this way. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for 
all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, you know all the people that we mentioned at the beginning of this service that have their needs and their requests that we laid before you. And we also know of Pastor Umar, who is here today and certainly has physical disabilities, which must be trying on him. So we'll add him into the prayer. And we also have Ron, who was here last week and is not here this week. He's at home laying in bed. And so we pray for him as well. And Lord, there are lots of other people that have afflictions and difficulties and financial troubles and woes. And Lord, you know every one of them. So I would ask that you would search out the hearts of the people and be with them and guide them and help them to be strong in their affliction, through their affliction, and if it's your will, to take away their affliction. And Lord, we certainly thank you for this beautiful passage of scripture and for your precious holy word. What a gift it is to us, and we treasure it and we love it because it comes from you and it reflects who you are, your very nature, your loving care for the people of the world, and it reveals Jesus our Lord, and it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.